A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Except sometimes we cover the X-Men in other titles. Uh, I have been rereading a lot of uh, New Defenders and the Iceman limited series, and even uh, strangely doing some White Rabbit research. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, uh, wow. J.M. Jam Demetrius' name has come up on my uh, radar lots of times. So I sent J.M. an email and asked if uh, me and two of his biggest super fans, along with me, could maybe sit down and have a chat with him today. So I am thrilled to be joined by J.M. as well as my friends uh, Connor Goldsmith and Sarah Century. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Um, let us know where we might know you from best, and uh, and who's your favorite J.M. DeMatteis creation? <laughs> so let's go in the order of uh, J.M. and then Sarah and then Connor. Oh, you want me to introduce myself? Yeah, yeah if you will. <laughs> I, okay, and then I have to tell you who's my favorite creation. My favorite creations would. are my are my two children. So that takes care of that. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, uh, I'm Jam Dematteis. I have been writing for comics, uh, prose, TV, film uh, for I hate to say this for more than forty years. For all the major comic book companies, for animation, for live action, for novels, you name it. So a lot of work over a long time. You may know JM from Batman or Superman or JLA or Craven's Last Hunt or Marvel Team Up. There's a bajillion places that you've read. It is, there are very few of the Marvel and DC characters that I have not had a shot at over the years, especially when you fold in all the animation work I've done. Incredible, incredible. And then Sarah. Yeah, I'm Sarah Century. You might know me from the Bitches on Comics podcast, and I do Decoded Pride, which is a speculative fiction anthology that focuses on queer creators. And I would say, I don't know, the my favorite creation is kind of the way that you redefine some of my favorite characters, because your version of them are, is the one that I know now, really. Like, and we'll talk about that a little bit here, but I think Moondragon, Moondragon like barely exists before you, you know? So like, there's a bunch of characters that I enjoy that you kind of um, like solidified in my head, basically. Oh. I think the same with Hal Jordan as well, because you did like that run on the Spectre that was just- One of my favorite know, things that I, that I did for DC, <laughs> yeah. It was so definitive good. for me because I feel like that character at that time, you're just like, get him out of here. <laughs> like, and then- I certainly was. <laughs> yeah, I was like, get him, go, I'm done. I have Kyle Rayner now. Like, we don't need to worry about this guy. And then you, the way that you wrote the Spectre series really made me be like, oh, well, never mind. About, we'll talk about that later. That's great. Yeah. And then Connor. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, my name is Connor. Hi, Rudy, again. Uh, this is my third time on the show, I think. Um, third, yes, or fourth, perhaps. Might be fourth. Uh, my name's Connor Goldsmith. I am a literary agent, podcaster, writer. I am probably best known to listeners of this podcast as the host of Cerebro, the excellent podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. 
the longest episode of which is the four and a half hour opus on Miss Candy Southern, a character who factors into uh, J.M. DeBatteis' run on New Defenders briefly. But I actually think that you give her the push. Sarah is my guest on that episode, by the way. We're the biggest Candy Southern heads <laughs> on the planet. On the planet. <laughs> um but everybody's the, got their favorites, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm still lobbying to bring her back. She's been dead since I was, I think, one year old. Um, <laughs> but we'll get there eventually. I mean, Gwen Stacy is a Spider-Man now. So what do you you know, you never know. Everybody um, comes back. But uh in terms of uh favorite creations, I love the um JLI stuff that you did with Keith Giffen, uh, you know, Maxwell Lord, Tora Olofstadter, all those characters. Um, but on my X-Men podcast, the one that keeps coming up is Haven, that weird, weird villain that you that's did so on X Factor. In that she's so you're weird. the first person that's probably ever mentioned that character to me. I love that character. <laughs> yeah, but no one has ever her. mentioned that character to me. She's again, like only briefly appearing, but I uh I had the trading cards, like the 92, 93 trading cards when I was a kid. And not to make you feel old, I'm sorry, but it's okay. Uh, Don't worry about she, it. She it was such a cool painting. It was like Boris Vallee or Julie Bell or someone like that. And I was really? like, "Who's this?" And then I I picked up the comic, and the whole concept of like the way that her powers worked and her whole weird cult and all the stuff that, like, I love a weird Valerie Cooper moment. That's mm -hmm. another like weird female <laughs> character with no powers that I enjoy. So, you know, that was a great, that's a great little plot. And I just revisited it recently for a Val Cooper episode. So I enjoyed it a lot. You guys probably know more about these stories than I do. I have to tell you that right off the bat. Yes. No, I'm sure. I, when I've, I, I've had several, you know, creators I really admire on my show and uh, Annie Nocenti and Fabian Nicias in particular are both always just like, Connor, you know these stories a million times better than we do. It was 30 years ago. I can't answer exactly, that question. Exactly. Like you guys are saying you want to talk about the Defenders. And I'm like, dear God, I hope I remember you're something about like, I wrote about six, the I, You're like the new Defenders? I only wrote six <clears throat> issues of that. Like, <laughs> but I wrote we, Defenders for like You wrote years Defenders for a million years, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We are here for all of your characters and all of your work, Jam, but you are just a legend in the industry. As I've told a few people that I get to interview there, you're like, oh my God, he's amazing. And I'm absolutely seconded. One of the things that I want to focus on, and uh, again, you've done a lot of work for our X-Men listeners, Jam, uh, Connor just referenced, Jam wrote X-Factor from issues 92 to 104 plus an annual. So we got some really amazing character work. Uh, with Haven as an example, who's one of the few uh, villains of color that's been at any prominent level in X-Men history at all. One of like 10 South Asian characters at Marvel Comics, frankly. <laughs> really? You know, it's so funny. And this is probably something we can talk about. It's like, as a writer, <clears throat> excuse me, all of a sudden, I think it's my allergies. I don't think about that. I just think of, this is a cool character. Mm -hmm. How does this character fit? I'm not going, oh, I, until you said that, I never thought about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was just, I was creating a character that was interesting to me. I think she is fascinating. And we, uh, but I do want to focus our conversation a little bit today around queer themes. Okay. Uh, you are a writer. So I started reading uh, comics very prominently in the early 1990s as kind of an escape from a shitty childhood. And I really delved in. I started going to the comic shop and bringing home just boxes and boxes of, of back issues over the years. Uh, your run on Captain America and your run on New Defenders was uh, some of the seminal work that really kind of transformed the way that I read things. And it had a huge cultural uh, uh, impact on me, on the way that I saw myself in the world. 
Uh, so I want to start with Captain America very quickly. You took over Cap and had this incredible run and uh, introduced. Uh, now, I, I, I want to be clear and I want to hear your ideas about this. Uh, we were not allowed to talk about characters being outwardly gay back then. It had to be kind of a hinted at. But you brought in a character right. uh, called Arnie Roth who's a childhood friends of Steve Rogers, who is uh, queer and has been picked up by a few other writers over the years, but is largely forgotten. Can we start well, with- Well, not largely Roth? forgotten. I'll tell you why it's not largely forgotten. Because they lifted Arnie's entire backstory and gave it to Bucky in the Captain America movies. They sure did. If you look at the first Captain America movie, Bucky's role is exactly what Arnie's role was. He's Steve's protector. It's like his big brother, his pal. It's the role Steve's reverse, a scrawny son. kid, exactly. And and that was one of the you know one of the things I think that was interesting about Arnie because he wasn't some sort of cliche. He was the tough guy. He was the protector, you know. Um, and they completely they they lifted that whole thing and gave it to Bucky. So that's kind of a two part. I know those are big questions, but tell us a little bit about okay. what it was like to portray queer characters then. Why you chose to do that? And then can we kind of start with Arnie as an example of that? Sure. Um, you know, just what I was saying a moment ago. It's like if you start out going. You know, I'm going to do something. Uh, I'm going to have a big breakthrough. and I'm going to introduce a gay character. It's not going to work. This character came about because it felt natural for the book. You're dealing with Captain America. If you look at Captain America's supporting cast at that time, he had a Jewish girlfriend. He had a, a Sam Wilson, his best friend, who was black. And, and, and I thought, you know, Captain America represents the big tent. So he would have a friend who is gay as well. And, but I love the idea, you know, this is a man out of time. So that, and it was the 80s. So it was still plausible that he could have a friend from the 40s who would be around. And it just evolved naturally as I, as I started writing Arnie that that's what he was. And, and without trying to sledgehammer it, it was about the fact that Captain America accepts everybody. You know, there's a, we ran into some bumps along the way. There was sometimes when when editorial way over our heads. Uh, there was one thing I think it was one of the, I forget which issue it was where Arnie's been captured by the Red Skull, who creates sort of a 1930s cabaret scene and makes him give this really demeaning speech about himself. Uh, and it's very clear from the speech, not that it hasn't been clear for ten issues before that, but it's even clearer from the speech that he's gay. And uh, the editor-in-chief at the time was uncomfortable with that and rewrote mm -hmm. a, few of the, a few of the lines. But the wonderful thing was when you turned the page, he missed the speech that Steve gives on the next page where he says, you know, your love for Michael is as deep and profound and beautiful as my love for Bernie, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, that, and that was the important thing. That was the important message of that character. But again, even though that was the message of the character, the character wasn't so much about a message. It was about a great character. That's the way I write. I have to write from the character out, not from a symbol, but from, from a really good character. And the wonderful thing for me has been that, uh, you know, what honestly, when my Captain America run was coming out in the 80s, it wasn't loved, it wasn't hated. It, my, my feeling as the writer was like, it was just kind of like, ah, it's there. And as the years have passed, more and more people have come to me to say how much they appreciated it. And years later, all of a sudden, people have come to me specifically about Arnie to say how much that character meant to them. And that's really moving to me and it's really important to me. Um, so, you know, you never know with these stories, they kind of ripple out. And sometimes the story that seems like it's a dud at the time that you write it 10 years later or 20 years later has an impact that you never knew it would have. I would say, Chad, if you don't mind me interjecting, I think another great example of that is the 1984 Iceman miniseries that you did, which I love. It's very weird. And it's one of those. It's like really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I am the first to admit that it's really 
weird i was talking to al <laughs> ewing about it recently because it was one of the stories that in the uk he read chopped up into like the serial format that they did over there and it made it extra strange because bobby's like dark night of the soul hallucination sequences lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks <laughs> <laughs> so, um but it, it, it's one of those stories that i think has a really outsized impact compared to how it was seen at the time because and I talked about this in the Iceman episode I did with Anthony Oliveira. Um, it's really the moment at which, between that and the cloud stuff that Peter Gillis developed, it, it's sort of the moment at which a lot of fans started reading the character as gay. And obviously, and I don't, I, I think you've said that that wasn't your intention. It was not. It was not my intention. So I'm really curious. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, it's just, I mean, I personally love that mini because like as an Irish and Jewish person, I call us potato pancakes. Uh, oh, sorry, never... I'm a, I'm a, I come from an Italian and Jewish background. Yeah, so that's, well, what, that's exactly it's what I was playing The Catholic-Jewish yeah. mashup yes, is a exactly. really volatile all that thing guilt, in your brain. All that incredible yes. guilt, yeah. And it explains so much about Iceman retroactively. So I've always enjoyed that. I've never identified with him as a character that much, but that bit, I'm like, I get it. And so the 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 interplay with his parents, the way that he sees this pretty girl and is like, that's what I should want. But then it turns out she's a cosmic abomination. The <laughs> you know, the the way that he reaches out for Hercules crying out, like, please save me. Like, there's a lot. He's in his little speedos crying for most of the story. It's just this very like. That's so interesting. There's something. about Oh, and and his whole dilemma is like. His parents want him to take off the little Speedos and put on a suit and be a certified public accountant. And right, that's not, he right, wants to be himself, right. mom and dad. You just don't understand me. And he's their only child and there are all these patriarchal expectations on him. Um, anyway, I, I love that story I think, and I do can think- I, Can I add to that quickly, Connor? Yeah. I think a big part of that too is that metaphor of he's kind of coming out as a mutant. His parents are consistently right. saying, right. Can, you, can you dim right. your light? Can you have can to you be that Can you stop telling people? And it's at a family reunion. If you're a like mutant, the you most to... awkward place to be gay. Yeah. If and you, his if friend you are... Mary, or his cousin Mary, who's just like a complete gay ally, right? Because she's like, yes. we always knew. Like, we always knew that you were just mutant, like, Bobby. That's it's fine. how it felt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And that's that's actually kind of cool, you know, that, that, that yeah. that's all in there and it wasn't in there consciously, but it works. Right. And then I'm I actually, think that later actually, writers picked just, up on that. And in the 90s, you get a lot of stuff where Scott Lobdell in particular really pushed that, even though it was still a time when the editors in chief would not allow that or corporate or whoever wouldn't allow that. But uh, eventually, obviously, it did become part of the character. And I do think right. it starts there. So that's, that's, that's so cool interesting. Thing. That's really cool to hear. Yeah. I'm actually genuinely surprised that you did not intend him to be gay. I'm shocked. Oh, I knew that. But it is crazy, right? A big theme, a big theme <laughs> as well is, uh, you know, as queer people, our parents have to develop an understanding of us as gay after we come out. And there's these conversations about, do you have to be so gay? Can you be less of who you are and make me more comfortable? Interesting. And a large part of your story is Iceman learning who his parents are as people. He goes back into their past. He sees where they come mm -hmm. from and what they're like and the oppressions they faced. And it's almost a reminder to queer readers 
that, you know, your parents are real. They've been on a journey themselves. I'm actually really shocked to hear that that was not your intended. Uh, well, you know, and the truth is, you know, it may, maybe that applies to a lot of people because a lot, you know, exactly. just in general, people, that's the great theme of, of many people's lives is dealing with your parents, your parents' mm -hmm. expectations, who they see you as versus who you are and stepping forward as who you are, you know, even being a comic book writer. Let's the, you know, it's like you go, you want to do what? Mom you know wanted what me to be a doctor, and here right. I am you writing know, exactly, an X-Men comic. Exactly. Right. You know, are you, are you gonna write the great American novel? Right. Well, I really want to actually write comics. What? You know, so I mean there's a million, a million things. I'm glad that 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 it works the way that it did, but I think it applies to a lot of different situations. Fascinating. You know, my, my, my two goals as, as a teenager, you know, or a young adult were to like be a writer or a rock and roll star. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was not going to be an accountant either. Uh, I did not, you know, and, and, and in the eyes of two parents who, you know, are depression era parents, that's like, that's crazy. You don't, you don't, you don't do those kind of things. You go to school, you get a degree. They wanted me to be a teacher. You know, yeah. get a degree, go be a teacher, you know, work for the, or my father used to go work for the city. You get benefits, you get medical, you know, the whole thing. And that's just not who I was. So we all have those battles in some way, shape or form. I uh, I feel like I've mentioned at least four times on my podcast when we reference the Iceman series, I'll say things like J.M. DeMatteis clearly intended for Iceman to be gay, but I need to go back and <laughs> add an editorial comment after Well, that. you know, now I'm going to go around and tell everybody, you know, just, just how <laughs> groundbreaking I, it, I was. Right, yeah. I meant it and I was so ahead of the curve, you know? Look Where's my award? Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Tell us how your run on Defenders started. What was your interest in the title? Kind of tell us the story you started out with. And then, Sarah, I, I promise we're getting to Moondragon. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. Like, that's and I will headed. try my best to have something of value to say and remember something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always loved Defenders. Defenders was the weird book at Marvel. You know, you talk about the Iceman series being weird. That You know, Steve Gerber especially. Uh, if you guys have read Steve Gerber's run on Defenders, I don't know yeah. if you have. I mean, it was... Gerber like just took a, a stick of dynamite and stuck it right in the middle of the Marvel universe and blew things up. And for me, by the time I was reading that, I was a teenager and it was like, oh, comics can be this, you know, it can be this weird. It can be this psychological. It could go this deep. Uh, so I, I loved the Defenders and it had a tradition of being sort of offbeat and weird. And plus it had Dr. Strange in it. And Dr. Strange is one of my all time favorite characters. So, and that's, in fact, when Jim Shooter gave me the book, when I first started Marvel, he said, I know you love Dr. Strange, so I want you to write The Defenders. And so it was, it, it was for me, when I look back, it took me a few years uh, uh, to really find my voice as a writer, um, not just in comics, but just as a writer. And it really happened when I did Moonshadow, which was my first big creator-owned work in 1985. But I realized looking back that Defenders was kind of my rehearsal because Defenders allowed me to, to stretch and poke and go off in all kinds of strange and different directions um, and, and often fail and sometimes succeed, but really keep trying to find my voice and do things that were uniquely me as opposed to, you know, there's, in my early years, especially at Marvel, it was like, there was a part of my brain, and I don't think it was conscious, that was saying, you're writing Marvel comics and, you know, Marvel comics are written a certain way. And the other part of me is trying to fight that to find the way that I want to write comics. And Defenders was in a lot of ways my vehicle to do that. And then having exercised those muscles, sometimes successfully, sometimes not on Defenders, when I got to Moonshadow and was able to step outside the Marvel universe and just write as me, 
that's when it all really clicked for me. But Defenders was a big, important step along the way. Like I said, when I look back, I think I can read certain things and go, oh, no, 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 that that did not work. And other things, I'm like, wow, that still holds up after all these years. It's, any early story of mine that someone says, that's really good, I'm like, thank you. Because, you know, I'm just a young writer, like trying to figure this stuff out so that that if it that if it's A, coherent, that's great, just that it's coherent. And then if it actually succeeds and means something to somebody, that's an amazing thing. One of your biggest things in the early run when you started Defenders, which I think was uh, 92, something like that, you had a lot of themes right at the start about kind of the good and evil of men's souls. There was characters like Gargoyle, who's an old man with literally the last name Christians in a in a demon body. There's Devil Slayer, yeah. there is Son of Satan. There's these kind of themes. And then you brought in the crazy six-fingered hand, which was like Gerber's Elf with a Gun, but like a little different and crazy still. Uh, tell us about those themes you were exploring right at the start, and then we'll get into New Defenders. Okay, yeah, you know, looking back, it's like, you know, I wrote, I wrote Justice League Dark at DC for a while, and I'm looking back, I realized Defenders was really Justice League Dark before there was a Justice League Dark, because it was all, I brought in all these supernatural characters, because I just love those supernatural corners of both those universes. Um, and, and I love just what you're talking about, those themes, because the characters like Son of Satan, um, was, you know, I loved also with Defenders, you get to play with the obscure characters. That's the whole point of Defenders. Nobody cared about the Son of Satan or Devil Slayer or, any, you know, even Hellcat. So you could do whatever you wanted with them. And you, you didn't have somebody looking over your shoulder going, you can't do that. You could take these characters and make them their own. And, and, and these characters all have this duality in them as we all do you know uh that you know from the time i was a teenager i was obsessed with the with the question of duality with the opposites that exist within us you know it's not like good is over there and evil's over there it's all in here inside us and it's it's this tug of war as we have to find the level of either acceptance and then hopefully transcendence um which sounds heavy talking about some comic book i wrote in 1983 but but that's those are the themes I was dealing with, um, and those are the characters that I love. I love when they I wrote. I was writing Ghost Rider around the same time, and it's a very similar thing. You know, it literalized those characters literalize what's going on inside all of us because we all have whatever the issues are. We all have them, and there's always some sort of tug of war in our souls that we have to we have to wrestle with these things and find peace with. Uh, I work I work as a therapist in my day job, and this is work I'm doing with my clients all the time. We have this part of ourselves that we emphasize and then the parts we're ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And my job is to help people kind of bring those pieces together. So I, 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 yeah. I love that. Uh, Sarah, I interrupt. And as a writer, I'm doing the same thing, except it's there. First and foremost, it's therapy for me, you know, and then you put it on paper and you share it with people and you hope that they get something out of it also. But that's the first the first satisfaction you know, beyond just the beautiful act of creation that these things come out of your head and you get to put them on paper, is that it's kind of therapy. You know, I get to work out all kinds of things. And I, and sometimes I never realize until long after the work is done, or I recently uh, just wrote a novella that came out in June called The Excavator, which you can find on Amazon. And, um, you know, you're in the story, I'm just writing the story. And when the story is done, and like a month or so later, I looked at it and I went, oh, that's what this is about. I, it was so autobiographical without me realizing how profoundly autobiographical it was, um, and that's that's one of the the, be, the best things for 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 creative people is we get to work this stuff out through our art, you know. 
When you were talking about the two sides of people and how there's a lot of duality in all of us, I was going to say that there is no character perhaps that defines that more than Moondragon, who <laughs> is so fun during the entire part. Like, I love that character so much, especially as you writer, because I think that she goes from being literally Madame McEvil, like kind of this like surface <laughs> level character, to she shows up and she's being so rude to everyone every person but she's also in the worst place like you know you look at everything that she's going through at that time and you're like she's you know she's got this thing on her head that hurts if she tries to use her powers like there's all of these issues going on with her and I think it made her a really complicated character in a way that I really appreciate so I was wondering if you had anything to say about that and kind of how these manifestations of you know we have a bad side we have a time of our lives where it's like, oh, you met me during that time. Like I was right, kind of exactly, a jerk, right? Exactly, like I was exactly. going through stuff, you know? Um, yeah. How did, how did, but that's just what makes an interest to me. That's just what makes an interesting character. Just what you said, you know, she's coming in with this whole history. She's being forced into this situation that she doesn't want to be in. And yet, and, and you know, through my eyes, I, I, I'm always looking for this. There is goodness in her. Yeah. You know, for all the surface anger and everything else, which is also part of her, there's something else in her that, that wants to come out. And again, we're playing with both those sides, and that's what makes interesting characters. And one of the things I never got to explore because I left the book is that uh, she's also, while this is all going on, very gently manipulating people around. I don't know if Peter ever followed up on that. He does. I, it's great. I did, a, I did a few things where you would have uh, uh, Bobby and Warren think the same thing about Moondragon mm -hmm. at the same time. And that wasn't because they just happened to think it. It's because she was influencing their thoughts at the same time, you know? So she was. She was a very complex and interesting character. And uh, it's great to talk about it because I, I haven't thought about these characters in a long time. And, and the truth is, any character can be complex and interesting if you find the right approach to them, because every human being is complex and interesting. You mm -hmm. find the most bland person you think that, you know, that you've ever met. And if you really could dive into their head and drill down, you would find all kinds of weird and fascinating stuff going on in there. And, and so, you know, that's the challenge as a writer is to, is to find the complexities, to find the contradictions and bring those forward because that's what makes them interesting. Moondragon's I, one of her first lines on the page when you write her Beast is like, Moondragon, it's great to see you. And she's like, I'd like to say that to you, but it's not. You look like <laughs> but it's simply Hank. not. Yeah. <laughs> she's I, like, oh, uh, well, she's being honest. You can't you can't fault her for her lack of honesty, right? <laughs> I thought, Sarah, that when you were talking about duality and no character exemplifying it more, that you were going to bring up Cloud. Cloud, because, because cloud <laughs> I mean, is talk another, about right? two people in one person. Well, but that I gotta give all the credit for that to, to Peter Gillis. That's He's more Peter really Gillis's plot. You know, I yeah. just sort of introduced the character mm -hmm. and he took it and ran with it. So all all credit to Peter to making someone who had really just been introduced in the book. We didn't know a lot about her and making her really fascinating. That's right. Before by the time you leave, she's just it's the stuff with Seraph and the Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the heritage. characters. <laughs> Although I was thinking about it was because you brought up the defenders. I said, you never know. I'm always surprised when these obscure characters come back and every once in a while I'll read that character that I created is back, you know? So I wondered if those characters ever came back. Like Al Ewing's, using, Al Ewing's using Cloud right now, again, probably because that New oh, Defender stuff was something that he saw in uh, that serial format in the UK. I mean, he's writing, really he's writing a Defender series and 
he brought Cloud back. It's like her and Doctor Strange and a couple other people. Oh, that's great. That's really great. Cloud, oh, let's let's spend just a minute on Cloud. Cloud represents a lot to a lot of people. Cloud is introduced in in your run as a young white girl who has a cloud bikini on basically. <laughs> basically yeah and some cloud power she shows up with two characters who've never really been picked up again harrod and seraph they're working for the secret empire under professor power who's a great ex-adjacent villain uh who's shown up a few times over the years and cloud is uh given a little bit of backstory in your run where she's got a tortured past she doesn't know Peter Gillis later picks up this character and we learn she's basically a sentient star system who came to Earth and there were two teenagers, a boy and a girl who are both dying and Cloud takes on their forms. And in Peter Gillis's run, Cloud is shifting back between male and female right. forms. Right. Ice, Iceman finds himself attracted to both, which is fascinating. But Moondragon is obsessed with her and both Iceman and Moondragon are out and queer in the comics now. Uh, Cloud has been used in the more recent Defenders series as kind of an archetype of the portrayal of gender. She's become almost kind of a cosmic being in a previous universe. If you go back and read Defenders Beyond now, it's great. Uh, but she, uh, she, she slash he slash they uh, kind of are just owning the fact that I am neither gender, I am all genders, I am me in my own space. And for a lot of trans readers or gender non-conforming readers to latch on to that theme, that's something you don't see represented in comics, particularly in the 80s. Now, I know that's probably not your initial intention for Cloud, but she's gone on. No, on I mean, I, I don't even remember what my initial intention was for Cloud. I was just kind of trying to come up with some new characters for the book. And like I said, I give all credit to Peter to coming up with ideas that were far more interesting than probably anything I would have done. You thought, you what know? if a Cloud were a bikini and then ran with it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the bikini was was necessarily in my in my original notes. I think the artist must have come up with it, trying to figure out how do you make a person look like part person and part cloud, you know? Um, but yeah, I know it, it is interesting, you know, again, to look back at these things and go, oh, yeah. Uh, I did a I did a Vertigo book called The Last One. I don't know if you guys are remotely familiar with that. But um, that was about this ancient, ancient, it took place in the present day in the East Village. But this is an ancient being who has existed from the dawn of time and was now we would say was gender fluid, you know, was uh, and and I remember back then it was like there wasn't like the they the they thing to refer to them. So I would write like S slash slash H.E., you know, for she. And so it would be mm -hmm. she and he at the same time and and and, ex and exploring that and this this being down through history had lived lives as a male, had lived lives as a female. And um, and it's it's interesting to look back now and go, oh well, I, that, that's more contemporary than I ever thought it would ever be. Uh, but again, it was because it was a fascinating character to me, you know, not because I was trying to make a grand statement about anything. And then years later, when it suddenly has some resonance for people, it's profoundly gratifying. Did that make sense at all? No, no, it made no. a ton of sense. <laughs> okay, I felt like I was rambling there a little bit. <laughs> So the Professor Power. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just you mentioned the Professor Power story, and that's one of the ones that Sarah and I talk about a good bit in our Candy Southern retrospective because Peter Gillis is the one who makes Candy the leader of the Defenders and really like pushes her forward as a character. In a, I've compared her to Sue Dibney actually from the the JLI stuff. Right. Um, but 
the Professor Power sequence, I think, is what sort of sets that up as something that can happen because Professor Power attacks Angel's Eerie and it's just Dolly Donahue, the elderly housekeeper, and Candy who are home. They're like talking about Candy's anxieties about being a superhero's girlfriend who doesn't have powers and how she can't go out and be in the fights with them. And Professor Power shows up and brings the fight to them. And Candy throws Dolly behind her and is like, "Get you need to get out. And when the heroes do show up, Professor Power has beaten the absolute hell out of Candy. And she's still like, you know, hit me again, asshole. Like, it's a very, it's a good moment for her. It's like, she's like, he might kill me, but I'm going to let this innocent woman who works for me escape. I'm not going to like let her get in the mix here. And And it was a really nice, moment for that character it was also again and, and this is sort of like what i was saying about valerie cooper in the haven arc of x factor the i'm always interested when these characters who are less capable physically of of getting into the superhero fight are given a moment of real heroism and particularly with the girlfriend characters right, or whatever, right. it's always nice to see that. It's nice when Sue Dibney or Lois Lane or Mary Jane Watson yeah. gets a yeah. moment. I, like I did that. a, there was a Spider-Man story I did where the chameleon was impersonating Peter and Mary Jane beat the hell out of him with a baseball bat. You know, I, like, I love your Mary Jane. He, yeah, yeah. he, get, he gets home and it's like, you beat up the, you beat up the chameleon, you know? <laughs> yeah, she's like, fuck the chameleon. Like, <laughs> She's like, she's chaining a cig or whatever. It's like, right, that's that's right. my ideal Mary Jane. Yeah, same. Yeah. But again, you know, a as a writer, you have to believe in these people as mm -hmm. people, not as characters, you know? And and so you have to give them life and make them interesting. And, and that's always the challenge. You know, Candy Southern, I knew next to nothing about Candy Southern, probably when I brought her in the book, other than that she had been in the champions and she was the angel's girlfriend. So mm -hmm. then what do you do with her? You try to find something to deepen and expand that character, make them interesting. You know, even Professor Power, we're talking about duality. And he's the villain, too, that most people don't even know ever existed. But the thing I liked about the character was his motivation. And again, you have to put it in the time frame was his son. His son uh, was was wounded in Vietnam, was 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 brain damaged. And he was and, and he wanted Professor X to help bring his son's mind back online and, mm -hmm. and Professor X couldn't do it. So he had this thing on for the X-Men. And But at one point, what he did was, he's an old man, he took his consciousness and put it in his son's body. So by the time he's in this Defenders run, that's what it is. He's amped up his son's body, but it's this old man's consciousness in his son's body. So it's the duality again. It's the thing that's going to make it a little bit interesting. And the way, if I remember correctly, the way that Moonshadow, Moonshadow, sorry, I got my, my books and my characters mixed <laughs> up. The way that Moondragon defeats him, and she's the one that defeats him, is by bringing the sun's consciousness up out of the body, and the two uh, consciousnesses collide, and that basically shorts him out. But again, the theme of duality, you can look through all my work, and you will find that everywhere. The, uh, the the thing that really resounds from your run, and again, Peter Gillis picked this up, of course, is a lot of the characters that you chose when you made the Defenders a team. They're a formal team. You brought in Beast, you brought in Iceman, you brought in Angel. Valkyrie's still there. Hellcat marries Son of Satan and leaves. Uh, and then you bring in Moondragon. Gargoyle's still around. And then they have kind of these ancillary characters that are hanging out with them. And a lot of these characters have gone on to become kind of queer icons in some ways. Valkyrie is bisexual. Uh, there's a moment when Hellcat is marrying the son of Satan and Valkyrie is so upset 
Yeah. She just she just leaves. She <laughs> leaves and into my mind. I have like remember this sequence where every other person is celebrating and Valkyrie is just like, oh, and you're just like <laughs> Is that when she's is she like up on the roof or something as you're leaving, or is that the scene? Well, she she yeah, initially leaves on her horse goodbye. and then comes back yeah. and stays away. Right. Yeah. Right. Aww. Right. <laughs> Well, then she, but then she goes to Asgard and brings home Moondragon, who's just a raging lesbian. Yeah, yeah no, she's like, I've got a new girlfriend now, and we hate each other. There's also a great bit uh, later on. This is in. The if film, I only knew but... this when I was writing it, man, <laughs> so much more salacious. There's yeah. a there's a bit in the Gillis where, like, you know. I think it's when Moondragon goes crazy and uh, the first time anyway and um, Valkyrie charges into Candy's bedroom and Candy's in like a yep. little tiny <laughs> nightie on her bed and Valkyrie's like Candy Southern you must escape and like is like giving her all but it's very much like Candy wakes up like what who me and like Valkyrie is like looming over. it's very <laughs> funny I just I know a lot of lesbian comics readers who imprinted very much on the new defenders. <laughs> That's <laughs> really, really one. interesting. And part really of really it too, I think, um, was like how it continued, right? Into Gillis's run. That's kind yeah, of how yeah. I and think it's very that, like, seamless. There were, yeah. The uh the use of your of the three original X-Men as well, you you kind of paint them as just kind of goofy buddies. They're dancing in the hallway, forming conga lines, but we go back and we add this stuff about Iceman being gay and, and having a huge crush on Angel. And then you're like, does this read differently now? Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about how you chose this team and uh how you made them a team because Defenders was the non-team. That Kevin was the Andrew. whole point of Defenders was that it was a non-team. And you know, I'd been I all together, I was on that book for like three and a half years. So it was a long time and, and and people don't always stay with runs that long anymore. It's not, you know, people kind of get on and get off really quick a lot. And I was just, I, I had done all these, I'd done the supernatural thing. I'd done all this other weird stuff, all the bring in this character, take out that character. And at one point I brought in the beast. I was a huge fan of the original X-Men, the that original team. You know, one of the, I remember the first back issue I ever bought, I was like in the eighth grade and I think it cost me three or $5 was x-men number one can you imagine mm. what the hell that's worth now i don't i certainly don't own it <laughs> i think i sold it to buy a pair of boots in the eighth grade or something <laughs> um and and i just love those characters so i thought you know you can do anything in defenders and they, they I know they were just floating around the marvel universe i had the beast so why don't i bring in angel and iceman um if i could have i would have brought in the whole the whole damn team and and then just the idea came to me so these guys have been part of a real team until you know before so they're not going to be flowing with this non-team idea in the same way that everyone else had been before. And it's just, again, these things are, I follow the characters. I don't like, I never feel like I'm in control of the story. When I'm in control of the story, the story is probably going to tank. I have to let the characters be in control. I have to let the story itself be in control. I always say, I have this image in my head that, that you're on a horse. The horse is a story and you have a goal and you're pointing Three miles that way, horse, and you start to gallop that way, and the horse starts pulling off to the left. And you go, no, 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 I want to go that way. And you go, and the horse pulls off to the left. And you have a choice to force the horse to go in the direction you want to go or let it go where it wants to go. And every time, if you let that story beast go where it wants to go, it's going to be a better story because it's not coming from your conscious mind anymore. It's coming from your unconscious, which has much more, uh, is much more creative and fertile and has all the fun stuff. So that's so the same thing. It's like, oh, these guys want to be in a regular team. Okay, if that's what they want, let's go in that direction and see. 
the joke of it for me was as soon as they became a regular team, I was like, I don't want to write a regular team book. <laughs> that's boring to me. So that's why whatever it was, six months later, I was gone, you know? The uh, the team itself is so disparate. It's just such a weird characters mashed together, which is one of my favorite things about it. And it comes from a, a natural place. And again, Peter Gillis did uh, great things with it as well. Uh, is that why you chose to leave the book? Did you kind of just feel like you were out of stories for these characters? Yeah, I, like I said, by making them a team, it felt a little more traditional to me. And I'm glad that Peter, I think he kind of blew all that up anyway, and it got weird. He sure again. did, literally. Uh, yeah, he yeah, did. yeah. So, um, but for me, it was like, yeah. And plus, it, like I said, it had been, if, if I was on the book for three and a half years, so maybe the New Defenders was the last half a year or something. And um, and I, I was just, some, you know, you kind of wake up one morning and you know when you're done. You also did some great work with Vera Cantor, who is my personal favorite supporting character. There's a scene in your book where Beast is out celebrating with the Defenders. She's hanging out in a restaurant and she sees him there and he stood her up for a date and she marches over and is like, how dare you? And she's so mad and I love what you did. You also told the stories regarding her and the Resurrection Stone. Uh, do you have any uh, right. fond memories right. of Vera Cantor? Well, you know, again, it's my love of those early X-Men stories and, and especially, you know, when you're starting out in the business, it's always like, remember that cool character that I loved as a kid? I want to, which is exactly what people are doing with my stuff now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I want to bring that in. I want to bring her in, you know, and then you kind of get over that a little bit as time goes by. Um, but it really came out of my love of, of the early X-Men story. So, well, whatever happened to her? Whatever happened to that relationship? And, you know, the Beast is another one. You talk about levels and layers. Like, who is the Beast? Is he the guy from the early X-Men stories who had that ridiculously big... Uh, um, vocabulary trying to impress everybody with big words was he the goofy comedic character from from uh from the avengers and what how do we reconcile these different aspects of his personality and that was what i liked about exploring that character again it's a it's a kind of a duality we all go around and we present different faces of ourselves depending on the situation um, which, we, which we all know, you know, you're with a certain group of friends, you're going to be one way. You're in a professional situation, you're going to be another way. You meet someone else, you meet, you know, the, meet the love of your life, you may act completely different. And, and, and these characters, because they're exaggerated, are such great vehicles for exploring all these wonderful contradictions. You, uh, you did a great Beast story in Marvel Team Up where Beast's parents are trying to reconcile with him turning blue. Right. Uh, that's kind that's, of very similar to what we're talking about with the Iceman story, mm -hmm. you know, his parents yeah. just cannot handle what he is. Yeah. And until that moment when his mother realizes no matter what happens, you're my son and I don't want you to die. You know, it's another another queer theme that gets used. And you brought uh, power, uh, Professor Power back for that one. And you brought him back in your X Factor run as the villain yeah. in your annual. I kept uh, trying to make that sure. character work. No one else. There is a lot it, of Professor Power content. <laughs> I, I really liked that character and, and you know no one else ever picked up on it and didn't no one particularly cared for him but it was okay I had fun playing with him I feel like I, Professor Powers could have a position in Trump's government right. <laughs> he was very much that kind of character in uh, fact we maybe you know it could be that, that that's what we've been dealing with these past few years is the secret empire Tell it's us about entirely possible that the secret empire has been in charge for much longer than we think <laughs> Tell us about your work with Don Perlin. I know you guys are uh, super associated with each other. Right. Um, Don was a wonderful collaborator. You know, at, at the time, you know, I was probably in my in my twenties, and Don was an old man in his forties. You know, <laughs> and uh, but we got along like gangbusters. He was so passionate, so dedicated. 
Um, he really thought about the stories. He really took them into his heart. He would call me up and go, I love that story. That was really, you know, and so you can't ask for, for anything more in a collaborator. He was, he was just a really, really nice man, dedicated professional, and he was really passionate about what he did. He, uh, he is such an incredible artist. His facial expressions and the way he packs so much into a panel, it's, uh, he's, he's- Yeah, with, with those kind of books, I mean, that's, that's always the challenge. It's hard enough writing a team book, drawing it, you know, having to work all these characters into these scenes and have them all retain their unique visual identity while they're all doing these different things. That is not an easy thing. That is not an easy thing. And any artist that can pull that off deserves applause. Uh, you also got to tie up the Steve Gerber Elf with a Gun story, which is maybe Marvel. So I used to work for the Marvel Handbooks, Jam. We, oh, really? Uh, oh, really? Oh, we had great. to write character entries and encyclopedia stuff. And maybe the most frustrating story in Marvel continuity to try to tie up in one entry is the Elf with a Gun. <laughs> did you write Elf with a Gun? Of course you did. I should have known. Well, Steve, Steve, Steve Gerber, Gerber started Elf with a Gun. Steve no, Gerber I meant I meant Chad for the handbook because oh, I oh, God. would have written a handbook entry on the Elf with a Gun, but Chad, that's just think, in retrospect, I'm like, obviously. I think I wrote the handbook entry on every one of JM's Defenders characters. Like, I go yes. through like Double Slayer, Cloud, like I did all these, but I did not do Elf with a Gun. But there was a huge like debate about what the fuck does this story mean among all the writers at the time? <laughs> you know, it was it was a challenge because again, I was a huge, huge Gerber fan, and that elf with a gun thing was just so weird. It was never really resolved in any way. I think someone had him run over by a truck, but you know that wasn't quite enough resolution. And maybe I should have left well enough alone. But it just was it was just a challenge that I played with it, and whether I succeeded or failed, uh, I leave that to you guys. And it's okay if I failed because it was fun to try. You know, so elf, elf with a gun. And just to sum it up into like 30 seconds, Steve Gerber brought in this bizarre little elf guy who had a gun that would randomly kill civilians over a number of <laughs> defenders issues. It started in number 25. It went on and on and on. And then JM gave us this bizarre story where the elf with the gun came back and it was part of like a secret tribunal of like, if the defenders keep assembling, the original defenders, you it know. It was like a time tribunal, wasn't it? They were overseeing yeah, time. Yeah, it was It was like Hulk, Silver Surfer, Doctor Strange, uh, and uh, Submariner. And if they keep getting together, then the universe will end. And so that was kind of the impetus for the, they like they had to disband so the new team could form. And it was so weird. <laughs> Yes, it was. I don't know if I have much else to say about it besides agreeing with you. Yes, it was weird, but it was <laughs> it was fun to get weird. That's all I can say. And that was the tradition of that book. How weird can you get? And not weird for weirdness sake either. Just, you know, it's fun to play. It was imaginative. It was playful. Um, and, and so... Well, that's it. I have nothing else to say about the elf. They brought him back years later in like Spider-Man team. Oh, did they really? Yeah. And then and then it made it weirder again. And they like tried to I think to it was change. a new elf who wanted revenge on the truck or oh, something. I... His name his name was Ralph. I don't know why I even remember <laughs> that. But the guy in Spider-Man team up, it was another elf and his name was Ralph. And then they had to like say Ralph, that the, the, elf. Okay. the tribunal that you had was actually like some sort of construct that was just manipulating the defenders into thinking they couldn't assemble anymore like other writers had to go back because they wanted to put the team because they wanted to put the team right. back together right, <laughs> right. yeah well that and that's that's part of the game when you work in a shared universe it's like okay they did that now how do i get to do what i want to do without violating what they did but kind of mm -hmm. undoing what they did and you know that's where shared is not get destructive very, yes exactly that's exactly right yeah uh, Sarah, do you want to take us back to Spectre a little bit? I know you had some time you wanted to spend there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, actually, I wanted to make a comment. I was talking about the Iceman series on a podcast pretty recently called Tighten Up the Defense. And um, yeah, they go through every issue of the Defenders. So I'm completely caught up on Defenders lore right now. But yeah, they go, they spend like, you know, 90 minutes on every single issue and all of this. But one of the things that he said, I hear really reflected in a lot of the things that you say, and it is not necessarily a question, but we're all kind of huge fans of Claremont X-Men, right? And Claremont talks a lot about how, you know, this is a big, like, you know, a lot of queer fans love the Claremont X-Men. And a lot of it is kind of, you see this subtext between characters like there will be two characters that are just so horny for each other that you're just like they clearly want a date right like you know mystique and destiny clearly want a date what hub kind of brought up whenever i was on this Iceman podcast was that a lot of your stories whenever you're dealing with like it appeals to a lot of queer readers as well and you're kind of um it's more identity based, right? Like, so yes. a lot of the people are looking at something like Iceman and there's no point in the Iceman series. I mean, maybe the Hercules dream sequence, right? But like, there's no <laughs> other point in the uh, Iceman. I got to go back and reread this thing. Okay. <laughs> there's no other point in the Iceman series where he's attracted to a man, right? Like he's, it's basically just, we're looking at his identity and how it plays out. And that is what resounds with a lot of queer readers. So I, I'm hearing that reflected in so much of what you're saying here. And I was just wondering if you had anything to add to that. Well, yeah, you know, someone asked me just the other day, uh, the question was, what, do you see, theme, what are the themes of, of your work? And, and I said, probably the primal theme, if you could follow it through all my stories, because I think it's the primal theme of being alive, is the search for self. It's the search for uh, personal identity. You know, it's the search for our psychological identity when the context of our families and what made us. And it's the search for our cosmic identity when we get into why are we here on this planet? You know, what is the meaning of this? And who am I really? Not just in my family or in this group, but in the universe, you know? So, it's, and, and those are the themes that obsessed me as a human being from the time I could think pretty much, especially from the time I was a teenager when it was like, well, what the hell is this all about? And why am I here? And then we find our answers and those answers also infuse those stories and those searches. So you'll find that throughout all of my work because I don't think there's anybody that can't relate to that because we're all doing that in some way, shape or form. The dream sequence we keep referencing, JM, is there's a there's a spot where it's just one page. Uh, Iceman is having this intense dream and the champions are assembled and he's like reaching- This is when, this is when uh, Oblivion has sent him sort of into a void with just yes. his own yes. memories and things, and right? He's, he's reaching out, I don't know the exact words, but he's basically saying, I need you, I love you, can't you be here for me? And Hercules is right in front of him and Darkstar's behind him. And Hercules goes, who, me? And, and Iceman goes, no, Darkstar's who I mean. I meant Darkstar, like, right. Oh, that's like, so mm. interesting. Yeah. And well, then you know, Darkstar <laughs> calls him a capitalist pig. <laughs> that I remember, I do remember that. Well, here's the other interesting thing, you know, because I'm saying, well, I didn't mean that stuff. But kind of, I was saying this before, the characters take over mm -hmm. and, and you know what I mean? And it's like, once the characters are released into the wild, they take on lives of their own. So I'm saying, well, I didn't, I didn't put that context in there, but maybe he did. And right, I really that doesn't mean, mean that. it's not what he's saying, you know. And, and I re and I really mean that they really literally take on lives of their own. It's a very strange thing because the the, the dance between a, a writer and the characters, you're creating this character essentially out of your own stuff. 
Uh, all your own psychological stuff is going into these characters. But once you put them on the page, they have an individual identity that's all their own, and they're going to go on and do what they want to do. So even if I think, it's almost like a, a Rorschach test. I may not think it's in there, but mm-hmm. you know what? It's in there. It's yeah. fascinating to me. It's one of the most fascinating things about writing to me is that, you know, is one, once these things are released into, into the wild, it, and plus you're dealing, not only that, the, then you're dealing in a, in a universe with pre-existing characters. So you're adding to a character that someone else has also poured their psychological stuff into, you know? So you've got all this different stuff churning around and then this character goes off and just becomes what it wants to become, not necessarily what you want it to become. Just like what I was saying about the story itself, it applies to the characters. Off they go. And whatever they become at a certain point has nothing to do with me. And it's fascinating. Yeah. Just, that I, oh, oh, I was going to say that leads right into the specter, right? Because I feel like the specter is one of the, or well, uh, Hal Jordan is the specter, right? Because that character was in a place where he's completely shattered. All of these horrible things have happened. He's done horrible things. And then I feel like the way that you get him back to where he's supposed to be is by complete like let's focus on what his emotional state is how other people are viewing him in the story because i feel like the heroes are all like buddy yeah. like yeah you've done a lot of things you know but they still remember him as their friends in a lot of ways so it's such an emotionally wrought story right but i was curious yeah do you have it you mentioned that it's one of your favorite stories it's one of my favorite comics too so i'd love to hear a little bit more about what you, you have know to say every once it. in a while yeah every once in a while you get a chance on a mainstream book and i was just talking about this with somebody recently where it almost becomes a creator-owned book there's almost no difference because you get the freedom to tell your story in your own way and we talk about themes you know the other big theme that runs through my work along with the the search for self is the journey to redemption, which, you know, we're all on in some way, even if it's because of some imagined guilt that isn't even real. But we're all seeking some sort of redemption, salvation, something that's going to put us together and make us whole. And it kind of fits in with that search for personal identity. And the Hal Jordan story is very, you know, very clearly a search for redemption. And, you know, they came to me and they asked me if I wanted to write the book. And I said, well, I don't want to write that specter that, you know, turns into a giant cheese grater and grates your face off. That's not, I don't want to do that guy. I'm not interested in that. I, I'm interested in Hal's journey to redemption. And they said, well, that's exactly what we want you to do. And, and so that's what we did. And, and, you know, you have to take it a step at a time and he doesn't start out that way. And you're just, just right. But he was not, he was not beloved. It took a while for the justice league to get used to him. I did a a two-part mini called uh, Justice League Spectre Soul War. And by the end of that one, they sort of went, okay, he's okay. You know, we'll accept him now. But it was a rough journey. And 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 he left family behind. And and so it was a, what was great about that book for me was it was a very personal story, a very human story, but it was also a very cosmic story. You know, with those characters, you can explore all these metaphysical ideas. And and at the time I was writing it, and you 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 know you get these chances every once in a while with certain things that you work on. I really got to write through that series and through that character exactly what I was thinking and feeling about life, the universe, and everything in that moment. If I can go back and reread that, I'll say, yeah, that's exactly how I felt then about everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm very lucky that I had the opportunity to do that. If it's certain, you know, a lot, obviously a lot of creator own things, but also. Things like the Spectre. I did a two-year run on Doctor Fate uh, at DC, which was also very much 
This is my philosophy of everything, from the psychological to the spiritual and back again, and it's all through these characters. And the Spectre gave me that opportunity to do that again. And thank God I had editors that were like, okay, go ahead. And occasionally they'd, get, they'd go, you sure you want to do that? Yeah, I really <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. Um, and at the time, what was interesting at the time was, I think there were, two, there were two crowds of people. There were the crowds that wanted the cheese grater Spectre back. And there were the crowd that wanted Hal Jordan to be Green Lantern again. Right. So there were a lot of people that didn't like that book. At least that was the feeling I had at the time. That was like, I just remember reading so much negative stuff about the book. While, and I'm thinking, I'm loving this. And I'm working with Ryan Sook and Norm Brayfogle, these great artists. It's and we're beautiful. doing these stories that are so meaningful to me. And what's been great is sort of like what we're talking about, about you know Arnie Roth or, or these Defender stories. As the years have passed, more and more people have come to me and said, wow, I read those stories and they really, really meant something to me. So the thing that kind of comes out and seems like a flop when you write it, you never know what's going to happen in five years or 10 years or 15 years after it comes out. So yeah, that series meant a lot to me. Literally today, I was just going to say, I, I'm releasing an interview I did with Tom Brevoort. And one of the big topics we cover is the idea of shared universe. The idea that you have a character, you have your hands on a character for a few minutes, and then it goes back into the fold and someone else does something. Sometimes people don't do things you like with your characters. Right. Sometimes writers undo it and people love it. Sometimes people hate it, but it's just the job of the of the continuity engine yes. to keep running. And, some, and sometimes you are creating characters within those shared universes that feel like they're yours. But but if you're creating them for Marvel and DC, you have to remember they're not yours in the end. You know what I mean? Maybe you're going to get a cut of something if it goes into a movie down the line, but other people are going to come along and do things with those characters, some of which you're going to love, some of which you're going to hate. That happened with JLI when they went through that period where it seemed like DC just hated all those characters. I and, know. You know, Maxwell Lord shot Blue Beetle and all that stuff. And at first you kind of go like, oh, and then you go... This is the nature of the beast. I'm sure I've done this to other people's characters and they felt the same way about me, you know, and you have mm -hmm. to just take a breath and step back. We uh, we use Juggernaut as a template for part of that conversation. Like one guy's hinting that he's a little bit queer, he's a little bit more heroic, and then the next writer makes him a Nazi who's stomping on civilians. And it's just, it's hard to tie those things together when you're- Right, it is, it know? is. And especially when, you're, when, you, when these characters are going on for what? Like the Marvel Universe is in its 60th year or something like that, 62 years, whatever it is. Oh, wait, this is yeah, definitely so, more yeah, than 60 because next year is the 60th anniversary of the X-Men and they don't right. show up. For Fantastic a Four bit. came out in 61. So we've, mm -hmm. we've passed, we've passed 60. So over 60 years, you know, that any of this makes any sense at all. It's kind of miraculous. I'm, I'm also getting the vibe from you, Jam, too. Uh, I, I published a graphic novel 10 years ago called The Mushroom Murders, and I recently was asked about it and had to go back and reread it. And I couldn't remember some of the names of the characters I created, but I definitely could remember how I felt and what I was trying to say and what I was yeah. portraying. Yes. And That's a really think, good point. And so you, you rem and a lot of times you remember that more than you remember the details of the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we uh, we have about 15 minutes left. I want to cover two things uh, quickly. And, okay. and Connor and Sarah, if you have anything, please interject. I'm happy to be flexible here. I think your most beloved story jam, if we chose just one, is Craven's Last Hunt, mm -hmm. which is this deep psychological horror story resulting in the suicide of a beloved character that a lot of people still, I think, uh, associate as their favorite Spider-Man story, if not their favorite Marvel story of all time, I think it's elevated up to like where the Dark Phoenix saga would be for the X-Men. Uh, why do you think this particular story is so beloved and revered, besides the fact that it's just fucking great? <laughs> it, you know, it goes to what I was saying before. 
once I release that story into the wild, it's as much the audience's story or more. Actually, it's, in some ways, it's more the audience's story than it is mine. Uh, I think it's a great story. First of all, Mike Zeck and Bob McLeod. Mike Zeck is, you know, when it comes to mainstream comics, there are people as good as Mike Zeck. There's nobody better than Mike Zeck. He's an impeccable storyteller. He can draw. It's all the emotion that you ever want is all there. I mean, everything I ask for is there in the art. And McLeod did such a beautiful job with the inking. Um, I think one of the, it's not my favorite Spider-Man story that I've done. I think it's a great story. I'm very proud of it. I love the fact that it's been in print all these years and people are rediscovering it and love it. But it doesn't matter whether it's not my favorite or not because people have decided that it's their favorite. And I, for me, the only the reason that I think it, it makes sense, aside from the fact that I had such incredible storytellers working with me, is that when I was writing that story, I was very much uh, in Peter Parker's mode. I was in the mode of all those characters. I was going through one of the worst periods of my life while I was writing that story. I felt as buried alive as Peter. I felt like, you know, vermin down in the sewer, you know. I felt like Craven with all his duality driving him nuts. Um, Peter especially, that kind of coming up from the grave and reaching for light, you know. Yeah, so, he's, and again, he's buried alive for multiple yeah, years. It's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, when the feelings that you pour into something are that genuine and real, whether you're doing it consciously or not doesn't matter, that resonates through the story and people respond to that. You know, you're not just throwing something out there and just throwing in a character bit. This is real. This matters. This pain is real. This hope is real. This journey is real. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why that story has lasted. Also, it's always fun when you take a character like Craven that nobody gave a damn about. Then you make them give a damn. And then you kill him and they're like, well, how could you kill that great character that I hated last month? <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, but I'm very grateful that that story has had the life that it's had. I'm doing a, a Spider-Man mini coming up in November called The Lost Hunt, mm. which plays with themes uh, from, from, uh, from Craven's Last Hunt. And it's going to be a really, really fun, interesting story. A writer decades later resurrected uh, Craven and made yeah. him immortal. And Craven was obsessed with dying again. So another writer came along and let him die. And now the Craven running around is his cloned son. I know. You know, it's so funny. I recently did a little thing for Marvel Digital where they want, they're doing these little series of origin stories. You know, like who is Daredevil? Who is? So I did who is Craven. And I didn't know really what happened after I was done. I knew that they resurrected him. So they sent me all this stuff and it's like, Wow, <laughs> you know. So this Craven is not that Craven. He's the, he's his clone, and none of, and so I had a I had, they sent me all this reference. So now I'm I'm up on what's happening now. But that's again that's the shared universe thing because people the, the the bottom line is people love these characters. So even when you kill them off, you know at some point they're gonna come back. Uh, sometimes it, like you know when 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 Aunt May died, I would have liked that of to to have stayed that way for a while. She came back like in fifteen minutes. You know, don't get me started. That's that's one of the ones that I think is the worst of all time. Is that that didn't stick. Uh, but well, and then the retcon was it's an elderly actress who's been trained to, to act like Aunt I, May. I, 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 we, I, it's so bad. It's like primordially the fact that Aunt May ever appeared again after that straight on so morning panel is appalling. But you but, know what I always uh, say is those the stories are still there. You know what I mean? Take course. the stories on their own. You can read them. You can appreciate that, that. One of the great things about that story is that I got a message on my answering machine back then from John Romita Sr., who was like, he was my Spider-Man artist as a kid growing up, telling me how much he loved that story and that it made him cry. You know, that like that makes a whole career worthwhile to get a message like that. 
Um, and then let's close with X Factor. How did you okay. come to write X Factor? Uh, this is the Haven story we referenced earlier, which is so right. wonderful. Uh, the legacy virus, uh, multiple man's death, at least it, it, at the time. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you came back to X Factor years later. I think um, I think it was really as simple as Scott Lapdell had been writing the book. And I think he was going to transition off the book. And he asked me if I wanted to dialogue his last few issues and then take the book over. As simple as that. Um, and I said, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, there very often there's no big decisions like, oh, that sounds cool. Okay. I'll do that. And, and then, and then you have to dive in and figure out what the hell you're going to, you're going to do. So it was good to dialogue a few issues from Scott's plots. Hey, that rhymes. Scott's plots. He could start a business, um, and and get to know the characters a little bit, and and from there, again, we talk about, you know, the the many people we are in some multiple man. I mean, that's the, talk about a literalization of all the all the different people that we are in our psyches under our skin. You know, what a, what a great character to play with. So I'm immediately going to be attracted to a character like that. Um, and Haven, you know, I have a a deep connection uh, to India to uh to indian spirituality indian philosophy so she was a character although she was quote a villain that i got to explore some of that through her um you know we, we played with the concept of the mahapralaya which is this indian concept that the universe at, at some point the universe just dissolves and goes back into the cosmic nothing it's always reborn again mm -hmm. after that um so in her mind she's actually doing something good because when it's reborn it's going to be reborn in a better way um, if I'm remembering the plot line, was that what the plot line was? Okay. Good. Yeah. She had like sort of messianic delusions that by bringing about the end of the world, she was going to create peace on earth. That's why right, she called right. herself Haven. Like she was creating paradise. Right. Right. And I realized as we're talking about, that's a theme I played with, with some villains over time too, because it's, it's something that we all go through internally too. We go with, we go through internally constant death and rebirth. I know I have in my life where it feels like I've just started a whole new life and I and the and it's and I have a chance to recreate the world again. So the thing about villains is you can't write a villain that thinks they're a villain. They're not, you know what I mean? They don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm a villain. Well, there, I guess there are a few, but you know, maybe the red skull or something like that. But, but they're the they, least interesting. Right, right. The, you know, she's someone who thinks, you know, she's doing something of value that ultimately is going to redeem not just a person, but the universe, you know. So she was an interesting character. And then I think. Was it in the X Factor annual where we found out that she wasn't the mutant? It was right, her the baby was her 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 conscious unborn child, which I thought mm -hmm. was kind of a cool concept. And I'm sure no one ever explored that after I was done. Uh, well, it doesn't go well for her. The adversary is reborn through the fetus and she dies. Oh, is that what happens? Oh, that's yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> but someone will bring her back. <laughs> I, and especially in this era where the mutants can pop out of eggs, I wouldn't be surprised if she showed back up. All the mutants nowadays, JM, live on uh, Krakoa, the living island, and there's uh -huh. a res there's resurrection protocols. There's mutants. They've, who they've unlocked a way to bring themselves back from the dead because yeah. X Men characters always stay stay don't never stay dead. So Jonathan Hickman had the bright idea of like, what if we just made that part of the story, and now it's sort oh, of a rumination funny. on immortality. Well, maybe Haven will come back then. That's great. Yeah, maybe. Jam, what are you currently working on? Oh, so many things. Um, I just had a novella that came out in, in June called The Excavator. Did I mention this earlier? In the, in, I don't think I did. No. No, just came out. It's the first prose I've done in about 10 years. Very excited about it. Um, it's through a wonderful website called Neotext, neotextcorp.com. You can go over there and read a free sample and then click on over to Amazon and buy it. Uh, the ebook is very cheap. 
uh, but you can also get a physical book. It's a supernatural thriller, and I'm really... Oh, I did mention it because I was saying, this is a story I was working on, and when it was done, I went, oh, my God, this is completely autobiographical. I didn't oh, even realize sure. it. Yeah. <clears throat> so that that came out. Uh, the Ben Riley Spider-Man miniseries that I did a few months ago, the collected edition to that just came out. Uh, the Justice League Infinity collected edition just came out, I think, in June. I've got The Lost Hunt coming up. And other things but the big thing right now that i'm really excited about maybe maybe one of the most exciting projects i've ever been involved in in my entire career is this new kickstarter that we're launching in uh in early october which we are calling kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of serious the demultiverse so um it's four new series uh where we're launching four number ones four different genres four different tones four different amazing artists uh, which you'll be able to get as individual issues, or we're going to do a collected edition. And and I am just so excited to to get this out in the world. I'm working with a friend of mine. His name is David Baldy. He's a he's a TV writer and producer uh, with about 20 years of TV experience under his belt. And we became friends. And I I thought about it a long time. I I'd love to do a Kickstarter. And every time I think about it, I go, it's so much work. I don't want to do a Kickstarter. <laughs> you know. And David came along and said, I'll run the Kickstarter for you. He said, What ideas have you got? So I pitched him four ideas and David went, let's do all of them. And my eyes just you know, <laughs> lit up. And I thought, what a cool idea. We'll do, we'll do the first, it's like four pilots for, you know, for, for TV pilots. Um, one of them is an all ages fantasy about the afterlife called Layla in the Lands of After, drawn by Sean McManus, who I worked with on Dr. Fate years ago. One is called Godsend, which is sort of uh Kirby Gods meet Philip K. Dick meet The Matrix, uh, written by my friend Matt, uh, written drawn by my friend Matthew Dow Smith. There's a supernatural western called Wisdom, drawn by Tom Mandrake, and then there's the one that seems on the surface to be the most traditional superhero story called Any Man, which is drawn by David Baldion, who did the Ben Riley Spider-Man series. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just you know, for, as a writer, from the time I started in the business, I always like to jump back and forth between genres. You know, I've always done creator-owned stuff and the Marvel stuff and the DC stuff. And even there, I do the funny stuff with Giffen. I do the serious psychological stuff. I've written autobiographical comics. I've written kids' fantasy. So these four books, again, are allowing me a chance to um, to work in all these different genres and then put all these new ideas out into the world all at once. So the, the, the Kickstarter is going to launch in early October through Kickstarter, but we also uh have come up with a print an imprint called spellbound comics and there's a spellbound website spellbound.com you can go there you can sign up for updates you can get all kinds of information about the books uh and where we're going with this and the, the hope is that we will be able to continue all four series as we go along you know and we want the readers to actually let us know which one they would like us to do first because the plan is to keep going with these so it's 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 really really exciting i i am over the moon about this whole project it's really exciting to see you coming up with so much new stuff at the same time as you're working in these other spaces. Uh, you've got an incredible career, and I'm thrilled to hear about more things coming out. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's, you know, I, this must be about 20 years ago now. I went through a period where I was going through another life crisis, and uh, as we all go through periodically, and I was thinking, maybe I don't want to be a writer anymore. And that was a really difficult one because, as everyone knows, you know what you do becomes part of who you are. Sure. Oh, hey, how are you doing? Why, what, who are you? Oh, I'm a writer. You know, that's that's the mask. I'm a writer. That's you know, and and so the idea of giving up my writer self that was a really big struggle 
Do I, do I really want to continue doing this? Do I want to go and go on a new path? I, I've played with the idea of becoming a therapist. I, I went through all these different things. And I had to surrender my writer self to the universe. And that was really hard because it was so entwined in every muscle and bone and cell of who I am that to pull that out and give it to God and say, you let me know if I'm supposed to do this or not. And what came back was, this is a really long answer to your question, but bear with You're me. Great. <laughs> what came back was, and this is the way the universe talks to me sometimes, idiot, you're a writer. What are you talking about? You know. And what I realized was, it doesn't matter that whether they pay me or not. If I was not a professional writer, I'd still be laying on the floor somewhere with my mouth hanging open, staring into space, making up stories. It's just who I am, and it's just what I do. So here I am, you know, after a 40-year career, and it's like, am I going to stop? No. As long as these things are bubbling out of my head, I'm going to keep putting them down, and, and hopefully someone will publish them, you know? And if they don't, you know, as every writer knows, I've still got, you know, tons of stuff sitting in files on my computer ideas that have not yet seen the light of day that I've been working on for ages. Some of these stories that, that are coming out now, I've been working on for 15 years. Um, and you develop them. But the magic is the moment comes like I've had this wisdom, the supernatural Western. And then suddenly it's Tom Mandrake who does supernatural and who could do Westerns like nobody's business. Sean McManus on Layla. Sean is just like, there, there's nobody who can do fantasy worlds better than he can. Um, Matthew Dow Smith has this ability to, to do, do uh, emotion and acting and facial things on the page that very, very few artists can, you know. And David Baldion is like, you want big action? David will give you big action. You want quiet moments that will rip your heart out? David can do that. So these guys are so good. And, and the beauty of comics is it's that moment when someone asked me, well, I see all these artists are credited as co-creators. You know, you have these ideas in your head for 15 years. But until the picture hits the page, that project isn't real. It's comics. You know, the visuals are, are so important. So the minute they bring that to life visually, they are co-creators because five different artists would, would take that idea and, and that script and do something completely different with it. So uh, I'm so delighted to be working with these guys, to be working with David. You never know with a Kickstarter. It's a roll of the dice. You don't know, you know what, what the final result is going to be. And, and I hope that the people that have been reading and enjoying my work for, for all these years will come out and support us, either through Spellbound or directly through Kickstarter. And, you know, frankly, I mean, I hope it's a huge success. But even if it tanks, we're having such a good time with this stuff. And I know it's four quality books that we're putting out. Well, I'll, uh, I'll make sure to get the links for everything that you're doing and post those links. And I'm going to be self-indulgent for just a moment. I grew up in a, in a large family that had a lot of trauma and I was the closeted gay kid that was taught I was broken for being gay on top of all that trauma and comics were my refuge. There was a lot of escapism for me through my youth. There are some runs, Claremont's X-Men being read at the top and Nascenti's run on Daredevil and your run along with Peter Gillis on Defenders are easily three of my top five or six storylines that I just found escape through, whether you intended to or not. It meant a tremendous amount to me as a youth. Uh, interviewing you as a 44-year-old father of two uh, is a very different time in my life where I'm doing a lot of things and, and life is great. But I, uh, I'm often reflecting back on the original times I read these stories and uh, what they came to mean to me. Uh, and then I went on to become the handbook writer. And I'm like, ooh, I want to do these stories because these are the ones that meant the most. And, uh, and uh, interviewing people who had such an influential spot in my in my uh, development is such an honor. So uh, well, you Jared, know, it's a tremendous uh, thing to me. Thank you. I, you know, 
I, I was that kind of reader also. And I think we all of us in some way, shape or form grew up with some kind of trauma. We all did. You know, I, I you know, we could spend three hours talking about my childhood <laughs> <laughs> and we all found, you know, story story is so meaningful. And I was the same kind of reader that you were, you know, I'd read this stuff and it meant so much to me. Um, so if my work did the same for you in any, even in the smallest way, I am so profoundly grateful. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, I am really, really grateful. So thank you for saying that. Uh, and then, uh, uh, we're going to kind of start wrapping up here. Uh, Connor and Sarah, it's such a joy to have you both here. Both of you are just at the top of your game. There is almost no one that I enjoy nerding out with more. I think you're both incredible. I love listening to your stuff and seeing what you're doing. Uh, it's, uh, it's lovely to have you here. Connor, you started this podcast at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. The day after, the day after dental surgery because <laughs> i was not going oh, that's why i sound so wow but i was not going to miss an opportunity to chat with jm de Mateus. so thank you jm this was a lot of fun well, thank you for getting up early i appreciate it and then sarah um, it sounds like you had quite the night you were like entertaining your boss's wife or something did i <laughs> oh that sounds saucy but i doubt that it was that the way did that not I'm actually happen yeah. no not at all that was a joke um uh, yeah it was a joke on twitter <laughs> I truly have no idea what I even did yesterday. I went to a brewery for about five minutes and then was like, oh, too many people. So I did the opposite of be saucy in any way, actually. I did a, I, I did FanX all day yesterday and then passed out on the couch at like 8 p.m. Woke up at like 2 a.m. Like, where am I? It was it was one of those nights. <laughs> uh, as we are all wrapping up, uh, let's go in the order of uh, uh, JM, Sarah, and then Connor again. Uh, where can people find each of you online? And Jam, I know you had a chance to talk about your work, but if there's anything else you'd like to plug, now is a great opportunity. I, th I think I covered all the plugs, but the main thing is the Kickstarter. So please go to spellboundcomics.com, check it out and uh, and support us. Social media, you can find me on uh, Twitter at JMD Mateus, which is like my main social media outlet, but I'm also Facebook, JMD Mateus. Um, Instagram, it's jm.dmateus, except no substitutes because sometimes there have been some imposters running around out there. <laughs> jm.dmateus. And I have my website, jmdmateus.com. Oh, I can plug one more thing, of course. I forgot. There's always another plug. Um, I do uh, I do these workshops periodically, uh, Imagination 101, uh, which is all about writing for, for comics and animation and fantasy and... Uh, uh, Hopefully early next year, I'll be doing another. But the other thing that I do is I have a story consultation service. So writers come to me with their comic book scripts, with their novel, with their screenplays, and we work one-on-one. -on -one, and it's really, really incredibly fun and incredibly gratifying for me to work with a writer when they come to me with their raw idea and help them develop it into a finished project. Uh, so you can go to my website, to the story consultation section, check that out if, if you're a writer out there and you're interested. And then you can always check the workshops page to see when the next workshop is. So I think I covered all that. I have no more plugs left. I don't think I have any. <laughs> I don't even have hair plugs. I mean, nothing. <laughs> and then Connor, do you want to go next? Oh, uh, sure. I switched well, the keep, order. You keep go you ahead. did that last time too. It's fine. Let's let Sarah go next. <laughs> Sarah, go on. Yeah. Um, so my publishing company is doing some stuff. So if you're on Twitter, I say follow Queer Spec because we have a lot of stuff coming up. We have a narrative horror podcast that'll be kicking off at the end of November, which we're all <laughs> exhausted by and excited about. And I am mostly just putting all of my energy into that right now. So I would say check out Queer Spec on Twitter. You can go to queerspec.com. And of course, as always, check out bitchesoncomics.com because 
were funny. I don't know. And cute. <laughs> um, you can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find everything about my career as a literary agent and my podcast and everything else at ConnorGoldsmith.com. Uh, Cerebrocast.com is the place to find Cerebro. You can follow Cerebro at Cerebrocast on Twitter or Instagram. At the time that this episode comes out, I believe the most recent episode will have been Pulitzer Prize winner Spencer Ackerman returning to the pod for episode 88 to talk about Fenris because we decided to do that for Yom Kippur because that's our sense of humor. Um, but he was, it'll be out by now because he made me promise that we would get it up before Kol Nidre so that we're not carrying that with us into the rest of the year. Uh, but yes, it should be like three hours of laughing about the incest Nazis. The from incest Paramount Nazis, X-Men. yeah. Um, and then uh, otherwise, I have a new podcast that should have launched by now called Single Female Lawyer that is a revisit of the 90s sitcom Ally McBeal. I'm having a lot of fun with that. It's co-hosted with Alex Abad-Santos. And I have some comics work of my own potentially coming up soon, but I can't talk about any of it yet. So just follow me on socials and trust me, you'll be the first to know. Uh, thank you again, Chad, for having me. This is always a treat. And everybody should check out JM's new creator-owned project. Like, you know, register your opinion on the new titles and see which one gets an issue two and all that. I think it's a really cool idea. So. Phenomenal. Uh, it's such a joy to have you all on. And then lastly, you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. I keep my own social media private because I've got kids, but those of you in the room are welcome to uh, add me if you'd like. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff going on. We are going through some programmatic changes, uh, starting with Gray Malkin Lane at the beginning of the new year. So I'm kind of prepping all the content to finish the year out. There's some amazing things coming up. Uh, and then we've got some exciting announcements as the year ends. Uh, you can find our t-shirt stuff shop up on TeePublic. Uh, we're also doing some cool stuff with Patreon where we're doing obscure focused characters. Uh, so right around the time this comes out, we'll be doing an episode. I've got an episode with uh, Bar Fox on Storm's parents where uh, David Monroe and Endare. It's going to be a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, and uh, we, uh, the next episode after this is going to uh, feature Mike Friedrich as we uh, examine X-Men 58. We are getting close to... Yeah, hey, you're about to run out of the 60s. Oh, we've got plenty, I promise. <laughs> Before I get to giant size, Connor, we were realizing we have enough content to carry us to the end of 2023, which is insane. No, you do, because you have all of those weird stories, like the Secret Empire, where the X-Men characters just pop up. Yep, they're all over the place. There's a ton of stuff. I'm really excited to be doing this comprehensively. Uh, Jam, we're doing the 60s stuff. I love the 60s X-Men, too. So I've been, uh, yeah. been slowly working my way through. And then lastly, this won't have any announcements for a while, but I just finished, I'm writing again, which is lovely. Uh, first time since the pandemic and i just finished a uh, a script for a graphic novel which i have just started to pitch to artists and i'm hoping to have some big announcements with the next few months it's uh it's a lot of fun so hey thank you everybody this has been an absolute delight i'm going to be walking away uh smiling and thinking uh mostly about wait you didn't mean for Iceman to be gay in that and now i'm going to go back and reread that mini <laughs> series immediately especially that please do it holds up it's great. All right, everybody. Thank you. We'll see you back. Thank you, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts 
Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.